0: Amen. Well, good morning. morning. It's awesome to have you here today. This is going to be a fun day together. Uh, My name is Luke. I'm one of the pastors here. And part of our preaching team and uh, delighted to uh, to welcome you uh, this morning. Um, we had a couple meaningful announcements last week related to service time changes and uh, our um, relationship with Redemption Church. Redemption Church as uh, one entity is moving to become 10 separate churches. We talked about that last week. We're changing our name uh, in January 7th to Ironwood Church. If all this is totally new to you, then you have a message you need to go listen to uh, from last Sunday. Uh, we talked all about that. Uh, but today we're back into the book of... of of Revelation, a, a message that I'm titling The Fork in the Road, The Fork in the Road. You know, sometimes you hit a fork in the road and you know it. Sometimes you're at a fork in the road and you didn't even realize it until later, Uh, I can think of a couple forks in the road that I hit when I was in high school. I remember uh, my junior year of high school, uh, back in those days, you could play multiple sports, right? It wasn't like crazy, you know, club sports from the moment of, you know, being an embryo, kind of a thing like it is now. Uh, But, uh, you know, and I played football and I played baseball in high school. And uh, my junior year, there was an opportunity to play fall baseball. That was a new thing. And so I actually quit football. And, uh, you know, at at the time, it was like, hey, that doesn't seem like some big thing. But it was actually... uh, through that fall and through the, the leagues and the tournaments, I ended up playing in that fall where I got recruited to the University of Illinois, where I ended up meeting my wife. And I go, man, w- w- what are the forks in the road? And it's like, you're, you're just a junior in high school going, am I going to play this or play this? And it actually changes your whole future, right? Sometimes you just don't know. Other times you're like, this is a fork in the road and I know. Like also that same year of high school, um, I had a bunch of baseball friends that all loved to dip Copenhagen. And uh, and I actually calculated with one of them one time. He'd spent so much money on Copenhagen, he could have bought himself a car. Um, but, uh, you know, he's like, here, why don't you try it? And uh, this has ruined my life. I, let me try to ruin yours. Uh, and um, and I, took a, I took a dip of it, and it was the first time I'd ever been buzzed. And I was like, whoa. I like that too much. I need to never do this again. And I realized, like, this is a moment. Like, if I have a second dip, I might never go back and it's a fork in the road, right? So, so sometimes you're at a fork in the road and you don't know. And other times it's like, no, I know this is a fork in the road. Here's the thing. Today's passage is a fork in the road and I'm bringing you to a fork in the road and after today, you'll know. You've actually been at this fork in the road. You have one of two directions to go with your life. You can follow the way of Babylon or you can follow the way of the Lamb. You can follow the way of the world or you can follow the way of Jesus. You're, you've, you've been and you've you are at a fork in the road. Maybe you didn't know it. And today, you're not gonna, after today, you're not going to be able to go, I didn't know. You're going to know it. And we're going to look at what that fork in the road is. It's a, it's a kind of unveiling of reality. And in fact, that's what the word revelation means. As we study this book of Revelation, that Greek word that's translated revelation, it literally means Unveiling. It means revealing. It means there's this stuff that's always been there and it's been true. You just didn't know it. You just didn't see it. And it's been an unveiling. And that's actually what we've been seeing throughout this book. That's what apocalyptic, uh, revelatory, unveiling literature is. is It's actually giving you God's perspective on reality, heaven's perspective on earth, the future's perspective on the present. It's an unveiling. And today we're unveiled that we're at this fork in the road. So we're going to actually look today at parts of Revelation 13 and 14. So if you didn't grab your Bible during the scripture reading, go ahead and reach under that seat, get one. Uh, I'm going to point out a number of things along the way, and uh, you will just enjoy it much more if you're able to follow along with me as we go. So today we're looking at Revelation 13 and 14, and, and we're going to see a number of sets of, of two. We're going to see two trinities, two marks, two messages, and two futures. Two trinities, two marks, two messages. To futures. Now, before we dive into that, let me just give us some reminders. We've been saying these uh, almost every week, some things just as we're studying through the book of Revelation this fall, is Revelation is less about predicting and it's more about preparing. Yes, there's predictive things. Yes, there's prophecy about things to come, but as much as anything, this is also not just apocalypse and prophecy about the future, but it was a letter written to first century Christians helping them prepare to be faithful, in the midst of a world that was against them. So it's less about predicting, more about preparing. We've also said Revelation is a warning about the temptation to compromise. Faithful Christians will be disliked and sometimes even persecuted and sometimes even killed for their faith. This isn't a warning about that you might be persecuted. It's a warning about how to not compromise when you are. And we finally said this, Revelation wasn't written to us, but it is written for us, right? We're reading in. We're listening in on someone else's conversation. This was a letter that God the Holy Spirit inspired uh, and uh, led John the Apostle to write, and he wrote it to these real people in first century in Asia Minor, modern-day Turkey, and we get to listen in, which what that means is it can't mean to us what it didn't mean to them. We can't come up with a bunch of new interpretations that they would have had no idea about. All right, so those are the reminders. So we're going to look at these pairs, and and in these pairs, we're going to see this fork in the road that we're at. The first one is two trinities, two trinities. Uh, We're going to see in uh, this section of scripture that there's a, a, a war, a choice, a fork in the road between two trinities. There's the unholy trinity versus the holy trinity. The unholy trinity is the dragon, the beast, and the false prophet versus the holy trinity of the father, son, and spirit. Now, we just recited the Nicene Creed. We just recited who the Lord is. We just recited what the biblical teaching about God is, about Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. In chapter 13 of Revelation, we're introduced to a kind of, what commentators like to call an unholy trinity. Now, the the parallels are not exactly aligned, but you do see an interesting and striking picture. So it says in chapter 13, verse one, and I saw a beast rising out of the sea with 10 horns and seven heads with 10 diadems on its horns and blasphemous names on its head. And the beast I saw was like a leopard. Its feet were like a bears and its mouth was like a lion's mouth. And to it, the dragon gave his power and his throne and great authority. So here's what you have is, is John sees a beast, right? We're, we're familiar with the idea of the mark of the beast. And we'll talk about that in a moment. Who's the beast? Well, there's actually, you're going to see in this passage, multiple beasts. But the first beast that's described is a beast that seems to have all this power and all this authority, but that power and that authority came from somewhere, and it says at the end of verse 2 that it came from the dragon. And, and the rest of Revelation tells us the dragon is that ancient serpent of old, Satan. And so, so the dragon gives his authority and power to the beast. This is just like the father gives his authority to the son, and then you see uh, a little bit later in verses 11 and 12, it says this. Now, this is of chapter 13. Then I saw another beast rising out of the earth. And uh, chapter 16, verse 13, it calls this other beast the false prophet. So that's why we could say it's the, the dragon, the beast, and the false prophet. But it's another beast that's a false prophet. And this one is meant to imitate the lamb. It had two horns like a lamb. And it spoke like a dragon, verse 12, it exercises all the authority of the first beast in its presence. So just like the father gives authority to the son and then the the spirit comes to point back to the authority of the son, in the same way now, the dragon gives his authority to the beast and the false prophet is meant to point to the authority of the beast. It's these unholy trinities. Here's why. The enemy is an imitation and a parody of the true God. He's not the real thing. He's an imitation and a, and a weak one at that. Uh, we're coming up on Thanksgiving. You know, I have a tradition every Thanksgiving uh, where I, uh, you know, go try not to pull a hamstring in a turkey bowl. And uh, typically what I wear when I go to the turkey bowl is my Tim Tebow jersey uh, from back when Tim Tebow, we got a picture of it, uh, back when Tim Tebow uh, was on the Denver Broncos one glorious season. Now... Uh, Listen, if I'm like picking something up after the game on my way home, you know, oh man, I forgot, you know, this spice or whatever for Thanksgiving, no one stops me in the store and is like, are you Tim Tebow? <laughs> like, are, you're really him, right? Like, like, no, like this is a way worse parody of Tim Tebow, right? Like, like nobody's confused. Like, Tim Tebow's a stud. I'm a dad, you know, like... <laughs> It's just not the same, okay? And, and here's what I wanna tell you. This unholy trinity, it's just a parody. It can have lamb's horns. It can borrow authority, authority from wherever. But all it can do, at best, is imitate what God has already done. And that's actually what you see through a bunch of this. And so in chapter 13, verse three, you see that the, the beast imitates a kind of resurrection. One of its heads seemed to have a mortal wound, but its mortal wound was healed, and the whole earth marveled as they followed the beast. So something about the beast, lots of commentators suspect this was Nero, uh, because Nero had, uh, had died. Uh, I think he committed suicide, but lots of other people then claimed to be Nero, Nero kind of back to life. And so there's a kind of, it seems like a resurrection chapter 13, verse seven. Also it was allowed to make war on the saints and to conquer them and authority was given it over every tribe and people and language and nation. So it seems to be after the authority that Jesus has because it's back in Revelation seven that all people and tribe and nation and tongue, that's who was worshiping Jesus and so that's what it's going for. Verse 13, uh, the, the false trinity performs great signs, even making fire come down from heaven to earth in front of people, well, that's what God did through Elijah in First Kings 18. There's the signs and wonders, verse 14, by the signs that it is allowed to work in the presence of the beast. It deceives those who dwell on the earth. In other words, it's able to use some sort of real, demonic spiritual power, but it only can imitate the real signs and wonders of Jesus. And then the beast also imitates God by marking his followers. That's what it says in verse 16. It says, and it causes all, both small and great, both rich and poor, both free and slave, to be marked on the right hand or on the forehead. Well, that's just like God had sealed his people. He had marked his people. And we'll talk about that in just a moment. Here's what you got to understand. Satan and sin are a parasite. They're parasitic. Evil is parasitic. All it can do is take what God has made good and distort it. It can take God's good gift of marriage and distort it. It can take God's good gift of sexuality and distort it. It can take God's good gift of love and relationship and distort it. It can even take the good gifts of God, like forgiveness, and somehow distort them to where now it's something you owe someone or you have to do, or it's now manipulated. I mean, like, all sin can do is distort. It's parasitic, it's not real. So, this passage tells us you can go one way you can go the the way of the false Trinity, the unholy Trinity. The dragon, the beast, the false prophet, or you can go the way of the father, son, and Holy Spirit. There's also two marks that this passage tells us about, two marks. And the first one is what we just read, the mark of the beast. Let's read it again. Chapter three, verse 16. Also, it causes all, both small and great, both rich and poor, both free and slave, to be marked on the right hand or the forehead so that no one can buy or sell unless he has the mark. That is the name of the beast or the number of its name. And then verse 18 talks about this number being 16 six six or some early manuscripts actually say it's six one six either way it's a number that represents not perfection it's not seven 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 now this is a real scary right we get scared about the mark of the beast every few years there's lots of fear about this this came up a lot with the covid vaccine not trying to get weird but like that got weird right Is it in there? Is there microchips? Is there, what is this? Right, we got very scared. Uh, Seth and I actually back in those days did a whole episode on our King and Culture podcast talking about the mark of the beast. If you wanna go in depth on the mark of the beast, go to the King and Culture podcast, episode 59. Here's what I wanna tell you though, as it relates to this first mark, the mark of the beast. On one hand, you should be way less scared of the mark of the beast. On the other hand, you should be way more scared. You know, that doesn't make sense. All right, here goes. Why be less scared? Well, here, here's why. A lot of people, a lot of Christians, have this fear that they will somehow be accidentally marked by the beast, right? Like it's going to accidentally be a hologram on your ID card, and you had no idea. And you will have faithfully followed Jesus, and you will have shared your faith, and you will have walked with the Lord, and you will have, you know, been, been a faithful Christian. And at the last day, uh, God's going to say, "Let me see your wallet," and you're going to be like, "Shoot, dang it! I knew this thing didn't look right." You know, like. That's what we're afraid of. No, 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 no. No one will be accidentally marked with the mark of the beast. Right? What this is, again, if, if the false trinity is only doing a parody of stuff, this is a parody of God's true marking, which is the marking of faith. It's a parody of Deuteronomy 6. Let me show you Deuteronomy 6. This is the famous passage the Jews would recite every day. They called it the Shema because Shema is this first word that's translated here as hear, O Israel, listen. Here's what they would recite day after day. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your might. That sound familiar? Yeah. That's the greatest commandment. Love God. Here you go. And these words that I commanded you today shall be on your heart. You shall teach them diligently to your children and shall talk of them when you sit in your house and when you walk by the way. And when you lie down and when you rise, in other words, you're just supposed to live by this all the time. This is supposed to shepherd your heart and guide your worship. But then here's what it says in verse eight. You shall bind them as a sign on your hand and they shall be as frontlets between your eyes. In other words, this truth about loving God and God's goodness to you, it should so mark you that it's like, it's just always on your hand, it's always on your head. Now, some uh, ultra-Orthodox Jews will take this literally and they will actually like, tie up little pieces of the law like and wear them on you know on their hat because it's trying to be like literal about it that's not the point here the point here is be marked by a love for the Lord he, he's redeemed you out of slavery in Egypt to the Jews he's redeemed you if you're a follower of Jesus out of slavery to sin through Christ's blood be marked by him and so when the mark of the beast comes and says, hey, this is on your right hand or on your forehead, it's not talking about, hey, you might have to get a tattoo. No, I'm not saying it couldn't eventually take that form. But the, uh, just like, you know, people could literally tie up a copy of God's word somehow in their hat. It could literally do that. But, but the idea is that this is actually about your worship. It's actually about your worship. And that theme of worship is what shows up all through this. This is how we know that it's really about your worship. It's not about some barcode that somehow gets attached to your body. Here's what it says. Look at verse 4. They worshipped the dragon. Verse 8. This is what the beast is trying to do. To get all who dwell on earth will worship it. Everyone whose name has not been written before the foundation of the world in the book of life of the Lamb. It says this in verse 15. Or I'm sorry, in verse uh, 12. That the, uh, the false prophet is exercising the authority of the first beast in its presence and making the earth and its inhabitants worship the first beast whose mortal wound was healed. Verse 15. It was allowed to give breath to the image of the beast so that the image of the beast might even speak and might cause those who would not worship the image of the beast to be slain. Listen, the key issue is worship. And the only way to resist false, beastly, unholy trinity worship is to know the real thing, right? This, if you've ever worked at a bank, right? You've got to identify counterfeit money. How do you do it? You don't do it by studying counterfeit money. You do it by studying the real thing, right? In the same way, we love the Lord our God with all our heart, all our soul, our, our mind, all our strength. We, we bind that to our head. We bind that to our hands. And more than anything, we bind that to our hearts. We worship God. The Lord is one. You love him with all your everything. That's how you resist the mark of the beast. It's, get the new ID card, I don't know. But resist the worship of the world. Here's what worship is. One Greek dictionary describes it this way. Worship is to express in attitude or gesture one's complete dependence. Complete dependence on or submission to. It's bowing down. Worship is whatever you're bowing down to. So so listen, on one hand, be less scared of the mark of the beast. You're not going to accidentally get it. On the other hand, be much more scared of the mark of the beast. Because it's subtle and it's actually about worship. And your heart is an idol factory that is easily drawn to worship things besides the one true living God commentator Tim Chester, here's what he says. He says, worship is living your life as if something really matters to you. Everyone does it. Everyone is a worshiper. The question is, what are we worshiping? What matters to you? It could be God and his glory, but it could also be money, sex, respect, love, possessions, promotion, sport, holidays, acceptance, home, or gaming. Where do you look for salvation? Not necessarily acquittal on the day of judgment, but salvation in terms of value, identity, contentment, and fulfillment. What's your God? That's what marks you. So there's two marks. There's the mark of the beast, but then there's the mark of the lamb. Look at chapter 14. Verse 1, then I looked and behold on Mount Zion stood the Lamb and with him 144,000 who had his name and his father's name written on their foreheads. 144,000 was described in chapter 7. These were the people who were sealed. They were marked out to be God's faithful army, people from every nation, tribe, and tongue, it said in chapter 7. And so the, the true being sealed is, is being sealed in relationship with God. And look at how these people are described in verse four. Here's how you know if you've been sealed with the mark of God. Here's how you know if you're a worshiper of God. It says, it is these who have not defiled themselves with women for their virgins. Now, what this is specifically talking about, this is imagery, right? Sin is often throughout the Bible described with the imagery of adultery. Uh, Sin is described as being unfaithful to God and, and sleeping with prostitutes, right? There's actually all this language in the book of Revelation about that, that whore, that prostitute, Babylon. And so what he's saying is the faithful people are those who haven't defiled themselves with other gods. They've stayed faithful to God. They've stayed true. They've been washed clean. It is these, it says in verse four, who follow the lamb wherever he goes. Boy, isn't that just a great, what, what does it mean to be a Christian? Do you got to know a bunch of stuff? Uh, It helps, I guess. What what does it mean to be a Christian? I don't know. I just follow the lamb wherever he goes. Well, but what do you think? I don't know. I just follow the lamb wherever he goes. But doesn't it? I I don't know. I just follow the lamb wherever he goes. This is what I love about baptism. Baptism. Right, as we baptize 15 people today and as they share their stories, you hear their stories. Here's what you're hearing. You're hearing a bunch of people going like, listen, I don't, I, there's a ton I don't know still, but I just want to go on record that I'm going to follow the lamb wherever he goes. That's what this is. That's the fork in the road. Will you worship sex, love, promotion, acceptance, home, gaming, sport, holidays, family? was that what you'll give your ultimate allegiance to? Or will you just follow Jesus wherever he goes? That, friends, is what will mark us. All right, so that's the two trinities, the two marks. Now we have the two messages. There's two messages. The, the beast, this unholy trinity, the dragon, the beast, and the false prophet, they have a message, and so does God. The message of the beast is in chapter 13, verse 15. It's essentially this Worship this parody, worship this false God, or die. Get in line. Or the mobs coming after you is essentially what it is. Look at verse 15. And it was allowed to give breath to the image of the beast so that the image of the beast might even speak, there's the message, and might cause those who would not worship the image of the beast to be slain. Listen, the way of the world, the way of Babylon, the way of Rome, the way of ungodly empire is to say, get in line, do what we tell you, or we're killing you. We'll kill Your reputation will kill your livelihood, will kill your career, will kill your income, will kill your opportunity. We might even kill your life. But get in line, get with the mob, get with the program, get with what we're going to call the right side of history. Get in here or else. That's the message. Well, God has a message and it comes from in chapter 14, what are... Uh, translated as angels, that same word could also be translated as just messengers. This could be preachers. This could actually be angels. I'm not exactly sure. But in chapter 14, verse 6, it says this. Then I saw another angel flying directly overhead with an eternal gospel. Eternal good news. Here's the good news of Revelation 14. Eternal gospel to proclaim to those who dwell on earth, to every nation and tribe and language and people. And, and here's, here's what this gospel is going to be. It's going to have four parts. Part one is verse seven. And he said with a loud voice, fear God and give him glory because the hour of his judgment has come and worship him who made heaven and earth, the sea and the springs of water. In other words, God is the satisfying creator. He made everything. He created everything. He, and I love the specific reference. He made the springs of water. Well, why is that an important reference? Because when Jesus came and he said, anyone who follows me, out of his heart will flow streams of living water. It's this picture of life. It's this picture of abundance. It's this picture of God's incredible goodness as a creator. And so the first thing is, hey, fear God, give him glory because he made you and he made all of it. And it's awesome. Get in on this. That's the first part of the message. The second part of the message is verse eight. Another angel, a second, followed saying, Fallen, fallen is Babylon the great, she who made all nations drink the wine of the passion of her sexual immorality. I love this message. Here's some of the good news. The world ain't gonna make it. Babylon is fallen. All the people that seem like they have power and seem like they have influence and seem like they have money and seem like and they're all going away from God, hey, the clock's ticking. It won't be long now. And that actually, to us friends, that is part of the good news. That the that the world, the flesh, and the devil, they're passing away. Don't give your life to that. What 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 does it gain a man? Jesus said to what does it profit a man to gain the whole world but lose his soul? It's falling away. Here's the third part of the message. And another angel, verse 9, a third, followed them, saying with a loud voice, If anyone worships the beast or its image and receives a mark on his forehead or on his hand, he will also drink the wine of God's wrath, poured full strength into the cup of his anger, and he will be tormented with fire and sulfur in the presence of the holy angels and in the presence of the Lamb. So God also is saying, hey, if you don't get in line, you will die. You will face my wrath. But listen, it won't be the wrath of an angry fickle mob. It'll be the wrath of a righteous, true, holy God who made everything and tells you you can get in on this, and the thing you're chasing, it's all going to fall apart. But listen, if if, if you want life without me, you're going to get it. And then there's a fourth part of this message, verse 12. Here is a call for the endurance of the saints, those who keep the commandments of God and their faith in Jesus. Endure Keep his word, keep his commandments, keep following him, keep trusting him, it's worth it. So we've got two trinities, two marks, two messages, finally two futures. This is the fork in the road. The end of chapter 14 describes futures this way, describes the future as a harvest. It's a harvest. And the first harvest is actually God gathering his people like wheat into his barn. Look at what it says in chapter 14, verse 14. And I looked, and behold, a white cloud, and seated on the cloud, one like a son of man, there's Jesus, with a golden crown on his head and a sharp sickle in his hand. And another angel came out of the temple, calling with a loud voice to him who sat on the cloud, put in your sickle and reap, for the hour to reap has come, for the harvest of the earth is fully ripe. So he sat on the cloud, swung his sickle across the earth, and the earth was reaped. Friends, listen, God is being patient right now. And he's allowing you time to decide which direction in the fork of the road you're going to take. But the time will come when time's up. And he's going to gather his people. This is what John the Baptist said about Jesus before Jesus even started his earthly ministry. Look at what it says in Matthew 3. John the Baptist said, I baptize you with water for repentance. But he who's coming after me is mightier than I, whose sandals I'm not worthy to carry. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. His winnowing fork is in his hand and he will clear his threshing floor and gather his wheat into the barn, but the chaff he will burn with unquenchable fire. One future for those who will see the goodness of God, who will see the emptiness of Babylon, who will embrace the way of the lamb and keep his commandments and hold fast to faith in Jesus. That future is a future of being gathered into God's harvest, being gathered into God's fruitfulness being gathered into God's feast. That's the first harvest. The second harvest is in verse 17. This is a different and a much scarier harvest. Verse 17, then another angel came out of the temple in heaven and he too had a sharp sickle. And another angel came out from the altar, the angel who has authority over the fire. And he called with a loud voice to the one who had the sharp sickle, put in your sickle and gather the cluster from the vine of the earth for its grapes are ripe. So the angel swung his sickle across the earth and gathered the grape harvest of the earth and threw it into the great winepress of the wrath of God. And the winepress was trodden outside the city and blood flowed from the winepress as high as a horse's bridle for 1600 stadia. That's about 184 miles. You know, the way that you make wine is you have to crush the grapes. You have to trod the grapes. And so those who are faithful to the Holy Trinity, to the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit, those who are marked by obedience to Him and love for Him, and He's my everything. Those who've embraced the message that God is good, He's eternally satisfying, and that the world is fallen, and that you want to avoid His judgment and stay faithful to Him, those people will be gathered into the harvest. And everyone who at that fork in the road goes, Nah, I'm going to just do me. I'm going to be my own king. I'm going to be my own lord. I'm going to be my own savior. I'm going to just do what makes me happy. Come what may. All right. Come what may. Well, here's what's coming. The great wine press of the wrath of God. And you will drink from its cup. Now, here's the thing. There's another cup of God's wrath in the scriptures. It's the cup that Jesus was praying about in the Garden of Gethsemane before he went to the cross when he said to the Father as he looked into the reality that he was about to drink the cup of God's righteous wrath against everyone who would ever believe in him and he prayed, Father, if it's possible, take this cup from me. Yet not my will, but yours be done. And thank God that Jesus Christ drank that cup to the last drop. Make no mistake, friends. The cup of the wrath of God will be drunk one way or the other. And if at this fork in the road you go in the way of the lamb, then you just know, okay, he drank it for me. And if you go in the way of Babylon and you go in the way of the world and you go the way of the dragon, you will drink every last drop. This is a fork in the road. This is a key moment. And this is an incredible opportunity for you to listen to the stories we're about to hear in just a moment. To have your heart, if you're a follower of Jesus, reminded, oh yes, this is why Jesus is so precious and to stay the course and to endure. And if you're not yet a follower of Christ, I pray that you would just be challenged by this. That this would be another way of God inviting you, hey, you're at a fork in the road, come follow me. Let's pray. So, Father, thank you for your word. Thank you that even in a chapter with such imagery, it's also so clear. Here's what you're inviting us into. And we pray, Father, with hope and with faith that you will allow us to see the beauty of Jesus. God, thank you for everyone uh, today who is saying, I'm gonna follow the lamb wherever he goes. Uh, God, that's what we wanna say in our hearts. We thank you in Christ's name, amen.